Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode where I get to speak to leaders from across such a wide breadth of industries and today I am really really pleased to be joined by somebody from the police service and of course you know they have an affiliation and affinity with the police service having spent 32 years there uh, and today we are joined by Andrew Thane. Andrew is the, the head of HR people services for Norfolk and Suffolk police forces He's been in post six months, so it, a real fresh outlook on on what's going on in the policing context and specifically in those two forces. But also he's got such a wide variety of experience. So, Andrew, welcome and thank you so much for being on the show today. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Uh, great to be here. Really excited to be here and talk about what I'm doing in Norfolk, Suffolk and my past as well. So you've only been in position, what, for six months, I think you said August 2023. Um, uh, but you you had no connection to the police service before that, and you know you've worked across a, a wide breadth of industries and organisations. What is your take on how policing approaches its uh, people management? Yeah, I mean you're right. My my background is incredibly generalist. Um, I've, I've never really specifically focused on private sector, public sector, or third third sector. Or, you know what we want to call that outside or, or any any area really in particular work as a consultant i worked across uh, many different organizations i mean in terms of the what i'm finding the police and i'm still very new and obviously every force is different but um particularly probably in 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 the forces that i work in the hr that i see and come across actually is quite progressive um with a focus moving forward i know that in some organizations some some forces uh, you know, the support functions are, are led by officers, whereas actually where we are uh, in Norfolk, Suffolk, we have a, a HR director who's a police member of staff, and there is a difference. And you know, when you've got a specialist in position, you know, it does change things. So actually, I'm I was pleasantly surprised coming in. I mean, if I I would say if I compare it to where I worked before that for the Web3 Entertainment Company, where I set up a HR function, you know, that couldn't be any more different. That was very much. Uh, HR function entirely led by AI um, and we're somewhere away from that probably uh, where we currently work they are a bit like chalk and cheese but but I would say in terms of my original expectations uh, we're doing all right. That's fascinating I mean um, if I can just take you back to what you were doing before the police service uh, and the uh, the HR function was driven by AI you say so what does that look like? I mean, what were the pros and cons of that? Yeah, it was, it was, it was fascinating even just even having everyone in. in so, so the AI 
the way we implemented AI, it covered all aspects, particularly around recruitment for us. So it managed all of the kind of interviews and all the shortlisting, all the first step, really, in terms of recruitment, particularly where I worked for the NFT company in Web3, the predominant part of HR that I focused on for them was talent acquisition. It was really much like Web3 HR, which is almost entirely recruitment based. So how do you attract the best candidates and, and then eventually employees and then how are you retaining those due to the high competitive market? Um, so the AI focused on that. And I suppose the other part of AI is it, it particularly probably in the Web3 space, it's more accepting than that. It's a very different place to work. It's not your corporate place. Often the people that work in Web3 are different and want to be different want to be decentralized you know we um people were, were paid in uh using crypto you know they wasn't get they weren't even paid in their normal currency you know the, the team that and company that i looked after that had employees in 16 different countries so you know it's very different um but 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 in terms of hr of ai you know you have to embrace it and so it meant that all, all the traditional kind of manual processes we do as hr professionals none of that existed it was all automated so i mean this is really fascinating and you know one of the things that uh, we often talk about on this show is this whole concept of being human-centric and you mentioned retention uh, and how a AI was helping the organization to understand how to increase retention, not only to hire the best people, but also to, to ret retain that talent, which is something that so many organizations and industries are struggling with right now, the whole concept of attrition. So what did we learn from AI in terms of retaining talent? I think the biggest thing for us is that we're, you know, as, as humans, when, when we focus on retention, you know, we always go to the standard, which is, you know, let's look at exit interviews or let's look at kind of data around that and having conversations. But what the AI allowed us to do was find those and uncover those hidden correlations, the kind of predicted indicators of turnover. What What is coming? What does it look like? And how can we delve into that more? Stuff that just from the human eye, because naturally, you know, as HR professionals, we generally get our sort of go-to, this is what we normally do and what normally works, but what the AI does is challenge all of that. I don't think I've ever had a conversation with an HR professional before that talks about using AI in the context of HR to be able to maybe do some of the things that ordinarily humans don't do. You're absolutely right. You know, we we rely on maybe surveys, maybe exit interviews and conversations to understand why we've got the levels of attrition if I hear you right, what you're saying is AI is predicting some of the challenges that might come ahead. So you, you get ahead of the curve. And then what it allows you to do then as a leader is have those strategic conversations. So what were the, some of the key predictors that uh, came out uh, that, you know, that you could maybe uh, form a strategy from? Correct. And then you can put those really targeted retention strategies, strategies in place to develop that positive work environment that good work culture which goes so in line with retention can you give me some examples maybe of some of the things that ai might have thrown out and said hey you need to be aware of this or you need to you know change your strategy to because it might lead to some uh, retention issues i mean the, the the most obvious one we used because we focus so heavily on sort of employees and what the market looks like was that market data analysis so using ai to scope mm -hmm. out what are other companies doing across Web3, particularly in the NFT space? You know, who are they hiring? What are they offering? What does that reward package look like? So that we can almost think about, are any of our employees going to be tempted? You know, is any is any of our employees likely to leave? Because, you know, ultimately, if you're an artist, you're passionate about art. But a lot of NFTs, art does cross over. So 
there are elements around you know we want to get the best people and want to retain them so it, it made us question particularly if we just take reward as one example we may need to move away from that normal kind of yearly uplift you know how do we manage that differently how do we keep people engaged and yes not everyone you know people always say oh you know everyone cares about money I, I would counter that and say if you do offer someone 10 grand they're clearly going to take your hand <laughs> you know, on top of their salary. You know, so, so AI allowed us to do that as a, as a real example about just take that manual part of those hours of work that would take someone to do, days probably really, to map out what are the, what are the competitors doing and what are the other people doing in the space. I think there's something that you've said around, you know, the whole concept of money and that often, you know, we've had a whole load of industrial action uh, over the last year or two uh, and the key word is pay. But I think there's a second word attached to that. It's conditions. So people aren't just driven by money. What are the other factors, do you think, Andrew, that that, that really uh, help to retain people, to get the best out of people, to get people to perform to their nth degree? I mean, I think the biggest one, um, actually, outside of the money, is people feeling valued and people feeling that they're seen, heard and recognised. You know, if, pe- if people feel seen and heard in an organisation, that goes a long way. If you then recognise, which recognising our employees on any level actually is also incredibly valuable. Um, but but I find that, you know, yes, money exists. And we, we clearly know from media in the last few years um, in terms of the cost of living crisis that money's been a big, big factor. However, I generally think that if employees feel valued, feel empowered um, and really enjoy what they do as a result, they'll most likely cope with a little bit of less money. I mean, I I have um, the advantage of going into so many organisations and having these kind of conversations. And, you know, I, I've heard stories of people leaving an organisation and then going going to a lesser paid job as a conscious decision because they felt that they would be better appreciated, heard, seen, and all of the things that you've talked about in a lesser paid job. So we know that money isn't the complete driver for, for everyone, albeit it is important because, you know, the cost of living crisis and the, the rate of inflation, et cetera, et cetera, um, money is important, but it's not everything. And there's something, there's a terminology, isn't there, over the last couple of years that's come through uh, where we talk about being psychologically safe and psychological danger. And I think that really plays into people's thoughts as well. What do you think on that? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I think that there's, uh, psychological safety is, is huge and it's really huge at the moment for organisations because if we take organisations as a whole, it's a real candidate market and it's highly competitive at the moment. So organisations need to be absolute top of their game. And part of that is allowing employees to feel safe um, where they work um, in all aspects, but particularly around psychological safety. And, and it comes on to that point about empowering employees actually we need to empower them to one make mistakes and really own that and understand that and feel safe to 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 create mistakes and also grow and learn from that but also um feeling safe to raise concerns and um, and make decisions that that could actually benefit an organization i often found when i was going in as a consultant you sometimes go into organizations really single channeled in terms of their structure and how they do things and um you know i used to look at some employees and think god you're you couldn't be any less empowered here you know it's just it's so bizarre and so strange because they're actually often the employers that really add value if they were given the opportunity absolutely agree with you and for me you know that that is like the epitome of diversity creating a culture where 
difference of thought is actually embraced as opposed to feared. Uh, um, and people might feel for more value then. Yeah, I agree, and, and I, yeah, I think there's some there's something about having value being different as well in an organisation, and difference is good and should be should be championed, um, and, and and the psych safety and, and all aspects of culture. I mean, it's culture really is the the ultimate umbrella across all of it. So having a good company culture and what that looks like really affects this hugely. I, I was having a really good conversation with a, a very senior leader in a a large organisation, and we were talking about the whole idea of leadership at one end and culture at the other end and how so many organisations see these as two separate entities. But actually, they're so interlinked that uh, if you have the right kind of leadership, it will lead to a a change in culture. And if you have a change in culture, it should actually lead to a different kind of leadership. Uh, So the two are absolutely intrinsically uh, sort of uh, entwined and and not separate entities at all. So in order for us to have great culture, we need to have great leaders, right? Correct. Yeah, correct, we do. And, and, And actually leaders that understand what leadership is, you know, is also really important. But if we take culture, you know, the key one that I always find as a kind of most contributing factor and um, that was actually found in a recent Harvard Business Review study as well is belonging, you know, that sense of belonging. And actually, how is that sense of belonging created? Well, that is created for our great leadership and working with each other and empowering with each other. But, you know, I, I remember reading their Better Up study in 2019 that they did and they spoke about belonging and how that increased job performance. And they saw like 56% increase in job performance and a 50% drop in, in turnover risk um, that they, they analysed. And, you know, that that was just by... And they're, they're a, um, they, they focused on a, a 10,000-person company in that study. And, and you know, the, the savings as well that's made there. But outside that, the key theme, golden thread, was everyone felt like they were one team aspect in the company that actually is, isn't easy to achieve. I should put that as a caveat. But... Um, but the key one was that they felt it was belonging. And ultimately, that's led really by... Quite often, I use the word coach, actually, rather than leader um, at the top. You know, you're coaching the best out of your team that you, you know that exists, So rather than sometimes leading them. Because personally, I feel like everyone is a leader in an organisation. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I, I have this frustration when it comes to the whole definition of leadership. Like, you know, if you Google the word leadership, you come up with a definition, which is something like it's the act of leading people or leading an organisation, which I think is just a such a, a a bit of a cop out really when it comes to definition because you have to use a word leading to describe the word leadership so uh, my version of the definition is that you are leading if you are influencing other people or influencing circumstances so there are people within our organizations who are the experts they may may work at the front line but they are the experts in what they do uh, and nobody else in the organization will know that subject matter as well as they so we go to them to be influenced so they are leaders right uh, yeah well yes they are i mean leaders are there obviously to make critical decisions set the direction you know foster accountability etc but the coaches that or the coaching leaders that exist are then then develop that share that knowledge that they're seeked and unlock that other potential in their other employees so that you know you can be a leader but i think be be a coaching leader really you know share that knowledge and unlock the potential of your employees to create that belonging that's so critical so there's a couple of things here and and i just want to pick up on the whole idea of uh coaching leaders and i absolutely agree that uh, you know a coaching leader is there to to get people to think to their full fullest of potential that's what coaching is really all about 
But uh, I also want to touch on this issue around belonging. There are certain industries, aren't there? Uh, and the police service would be one of those where people join these industries out of a sense of vocation. And and sometimes um, because of that sense of vocation, they know they're surrounded by other people who are on that same sort of vocational journey. There's an increased level of belonging. And then there's something around geography. So if you are working in, let's say, a police force or an NHS trust, which is in a county, which is off the beaten path, for example, Norfolk, Suffolk, Lincoln, Dorset, there, there are many out there uh, where people tend to stay in one area, that sense of belonging could be further increased. So how and why is it then, do you think, that uh, organisations where there is a sense of vocation, and it tends to be largely in the public service sectors, um, that the rate of attrition seems to have been increasing? You know, there's been surveys happening there over the last couple of years where, you know, it's frightening really to think that a third of police officers were thinking about leaving and NHS is leaking talent all the time and struggling to recruit. What do you think might be going on there then? Yeah, I mean, the problem is that that, that sense of belonging is, as you mentioned, you know, the public sector really, we could probably wrap it up as in terms of the umbrella and, and all those companies that and organisations that exist within it, um, councils and, and NHS, etc. and police. The, the, the problem is, I think, why it's difficult in public sector versus the private sector and the private sector has more autonomy and there's more competitiveness around employees in the public sector people often join and they'll join for different reasons um you know people can always leave and join the private sector but what you get in the public sector is you get an element of stability and that goes a really long way um into why people work in there and often you find them more kind of career pathways the police is a good example someone will join as an officer and that's their career and they've and they've chosen to do that what often lacks though in the public sector is that element of being seen heard and recognized because it is so intrinsically focused on on a way of working that exists that's probably slightly old-fashioned um, to some it's very difficult to move outside of that that creates and fosters a culture that isn't very inclusive um, and then feeling that you're being heard and creating that sense of belonging is really difficult and the other, other element you often find in public sector you've only got to look at the number of people off sick you know it's more, more often very high in the public sector than, than the private sector and that i think is again because there's a lack of focus on well-being i think when when people work in these careers in the nhs and i, I previously worked and did a project in the nhs during covid and what i found there was that you know these nurses and doctors you know they're in this career and they're kind of in that flow but they're the managers don't treat them like they wouldn't private sector and the basis that in the private sector you really got to look after your employees because they could leave whereas in the i think in the public sector there's the sort of sometimes people are, are are less thought of like that in terms of the fact that they're in a professional career and they're kind of just they're always going to do that career so perhaps organizations feel like they don't really need to focus on well-being and on other parts of of um, how you value employees as much. I think that's very interesting. I think um, I, I think generally speaking, individual leaders do really care. You know, I, I work on a philosophy that people genuinely care about other people. I think one one thing with the public sector is that um, you know within the public sector there is a mindset, and it exists across the whole of the public sector, in my experience, and and within the civil service, that it's so steeped in bureaucracy, policies, practices, uh, and it, it's sort of is it becomes less agile than most other sectors as a consequence of that. 
And I wonder if that has a part to play in in the public sector having more difficulties and more challenges to sort of reshape its culture at the speed that it needs to to accommodate the the different generations of people that are coming through. Somebody told me the other day there are like five generations in the working environment right now. I mean, that's quite unbelievable when you think about it. Yeah, and I think that agile element is a great way of describing how difficult it is in the public sector because there's so many stakeholders that have input there's so many organizations that cross over and interlink and really rely on each other to make other decisions that then impact theirs and that then relies on someone else and it is that bureaucracy element red tape actually we could call it for putting layman's terms really that exists in the public sector that just doesn't in the private sector and that's also why as hr professionals in the public sector it is so different how i've worked in the companies i've worked for i've seen all kind all sides really of of HR and there's still many more out there obviously but but it is fascinating seeing the difference going into the public sector and you know shredding through treacle really to sometimes make changes um, I don't see that that much in where I work at the moment but certainly when I've worked in the public sector before that that's often how it's felt like and I'm sure that resonate with some listeners around the work in HR in the public sector whereas in the private sector you just you're just able to make quick decisions that you just you just can't do yeah I, w- I was talking to a group of HR directors uh, doing a talk last week and they were talking about how there seems to be a shift in HR. There seems to be this awareness within HR that where in many, many organizations, HR is still a very policy-driven uh, sort of specialism, whereas this new kind of HR is putting the human back in HR, if you like, and it's much more people-centric, much more human-centric. Uh, have you noticed that shift and what do you think is a driver behind that shift? I think it's a, obviously a welcome shift as well. Yeah, I have seen the shift. And actually, quite often, you, you're seeing more forward-thinking organisations rebrand HR to people or being a people director or, you know, and we see that in terms of senior roles. You know, often it's like head of people or rather than head of HR or people director instead of HR director. And that's, I actually agree with that in an aspect. And, and I think part of that is because, you know, our humans aren't resources, they're people <laughs> and people that exist and are absolutely valued in organisations. So it's important we rebrand that. But I think there has been a shift. And I, I, I think that there's certainly lots of catching up to do um, for organisations. I think the COVID pandemic and the way of working has changed things. And I think HR as a, as a kind of a department has had to, they've had such a part to play in that. I think HR will continue to be or have an element of that kind of old style personnel. I think that will always drag on and exist for for probably generations to come. But I think where HR will get to is focused around employee experience. How can we keep the best people? What does that look like? Let's be more flexible as an organisation. How can we get the best out of the people for the hours they really want to work? Because we know from the generation that are coming through at the moment, they want to work differently. They don't want to do a nine to five. I also get a sense that HR is becoming more influential in driving change towards a new culture. Whereas in my own own experience, in my leadership journey, HR was much more sort of, let's say, defensive of the organization. And they were there to advise you on what you could and couldn't do. I think HR is now... Uh, for for the right kind of organisation and for those forward-thinking organisations where HR is much more about the people, it is becoming an influencer around the shift in culture. 
that's much needed. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, that, we've only got to look at the, the um, evolution of the CRPD and how that's gone and the difference between HR. You know, we but you see two sides of the coin. You see that really kind of legal stance that sometimes HR crosses into, or you see that modern, more forward-thinking HR, which is tend to where I try and aim for, around that really empowering business partner and part of HR. You know, how can we help you get the best of what you need? You know, actually, I don't see HRs sitting there and being effectively the decision-makers or almost the rubber stamp on, oh, yeah, that's fine, that's safe and legal. What we need to be doing is having managers' knowledge, being coaching leaders, um, to run with their teams and own their teams. I, I always struggle when I go into organisations and, um, you know, I, I managers talk to me about making decisions and I, I, and I always say to them, but I don't know your team, like you know your team, I don't know them, so how can I make a decision? You work with them day in, day out, every day, you'll know how to get the best out of them, how they work, what they do. I don't know that. I can give you the, you know, static case law if you like, but that's not going to solve the decision. People are humans we need to make human-centred decisions that are ethical and right by people, and you know that. I can just guide you and keep you on track, keep the organisation safe. And, of course, when leaders are approaching you to, you know, rubber-stamp things or to advise on what can and can't be done, that sort of says something about the, the leadership courage that exists within the organisation or the culture that exists within the organisation, I think. Uh, and And when you have the different conversations around you are the leader, you take those decisions, I'm, I'm here to influence and guide you and show you what the world could be like, you know, that's my position in HR. That's a wholly different culture in an organisation, isn't it? When I worked for the NHS Trust, the HR team there rolled out a, a concept around knowing your staff. You know, we'll be there for the complex stuff, you know, the kind of um, tricky, risky decisions, but, but actually, ultimately, who knows their team the best? Well, it's not HR that, you know, often we hear, not that visible. Um, personally, I don't like that term, and I, I try and be very visible, but, you know, that's often the case in organisations. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a shift and it is a cultural shift. And do you know what? That culture leads from the top. You, know, you have to have a great coach at the top that actually intertwines all these areas. HR is a key part of that. That's brilliant. And, and we're speaking exactly the same language and uh, I can't believe, you know, we're coming towards the end already. If there was a leader of an organisation, maybe a CEO or a chief exec or, you know, a managing director listening to this, or maybe just a, a leader in any organisation who wants to get the best out of their team, what would be like your top five tips to create the right kind of human-centric culture to get the best out of your people and to retain your people? Create that sense of belonging. So talk to your employees, value them, understand what their values are and, and, and align that to the company values, you know, get them involved with that. Because ultimately culture starts off by setting some company values. And quite often those company values get stuck and, centred, and, and get set within a boardroom. Well, no, empower your employees to set those with you and take them on that journey allow the contribution part which is the second tip would be you know allow that contribution and that shared ownership across the organization to create create everyone to be empowered to, to champion i suppose the only other part is have it equitable you know which which we spoke about a little bit but you know keep keep it fair and equal for everyone and uh, allow that visibility element um that exists and put that somewhere in the values really lead through your people and allow them to be those leaders you coaching them to get the best out of it rather than just set everything in the boardroom and deliver it downwards. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.